Episode 13 The Pit What a mess was revealed by the weak sunrise. What a shambles. The dismantlement of a suburb. The disarrangement of all that was once organised and normal. And yet... Under the pale light of morning, the neighbourhood felt bare. There was a wide-open, yawning feeling about the place. An expansive stillness. The dark, sodden piles of fallen branches and other detritus lay unmolested by snout or hoof or lizard eye. No tropical shrieks or monkeyish chattering pierced the air. Oh, the odd local critter might have been seen badgering about just after dawn, but only as a means to get home, and that with little enthusiasm. The wind died abruptly at 6am, and the sudden change made Shirley look up from her laptop, working away as she was, trying to keep things normal in the absence of sleep. Sally glanced out of her window, woken by the silence and, perturbed, hurried down to open the door to survey her damaged garden. Gavin was stood in front of her wall, nosy with his camera, on the hunt for upturned objects for the evidence table. She looked straight at him, glanced down at the churned earth at the foot of her front step and, horrified, slammed the door on him, running to the loo under the stairs to vomit. Gavin grimaced as he made sense of the sounds from within. Checking he had good enough images of what looked like just a load of sweet wrappers, actually, he moved on towards the enormous puddle. Well, one might almost have called it a pond, really, blocking the end of Rowan Drive and, consequently, Gavin's route to Lance's house. Edging around the silvered body of water, he looked instinctively up into the big red beech tree to find Owl on her perch. There she sat, watching him, and he felt at once reassured and disturbed. He nodded at her respectfully, and she gave a little ruffle in response, then bobbed as if to launch herself, making Gavin duck slightly, settling back on her perch with a smirk. Gavin stopped himself from swearing, and instead smiled at her admiringly. And now, as Cat rounds the corner, coming up from Lightwood Road, Gavin's feet take him onwards towards his goal, away from his almost nemesis. Someone happens to be emerging from Lance's side gate. Not Lance. Bethany, Lance's neighbour, wrangling a red plastic chair. Her face brightens at seeing Gavin, and she immediately launches into a detailed explanation of her current activities and, helpfully, an update on Lance's whereabouts, the NHS walk-in centre. Cat, living up to her name, commences stealth tactics when she sees the conversation taking place. She manages to overhear most of it without being noticed before Bethany clocks her and calls out a greeting. Gavin follows suit, reluctantly. Hi, Cat. Cat looks at him and sniffs. Hi, Beth. Oh, God, did the wind do that? Shirley's lost her, uh, cover, 
thing from the, uh, you know, the uh, table. I think that'll be somewhere in Lance's garden too. I'll just nip in and have a look. Yeah, I was just coming round to help look for that too. Oh, don't worry, Gavin. I can do it. It's not heavy. It might be stuck in a tree. Beth's chair was. But Cat has already disappeared up the end of the passage. Gavin pursues her. Be careful. It looks like the Battle of the Somme back there. Don't get sucked off in the mud, calls Bethany, tentatively following her neighbour's nose for something odd twitching. But she stops, looks round, not quite sure why. She steps across Lance's driveway to look beyond the little hedge, blinks as she tries to make sense of what she's seeing. There's a pit in front of Lance's bay window. His big daft car was in the way earlier, but now the drive is empty, she has a clear view. It looks like a bomb crater. She creeps towards it and, keeping back a pace, peers into it. It's deep. She can't see the bottom. She steps closer and, looming above the cavity, stares down. It's flooded with scummy greyish-brown water. Maybe she could get a stick and have a poke into it, see how deep it goes. She stands, awestruck, still clutching her patio chair in one hand. What is it? Gavin asks, innocently enough, but Beth spins round in shock, hitting Gavin with the plastic chair, who grabs one leg of it defensively and so jerks Bethany backwards. There's a slow motion moment as Bethany realises she has one foot on slippy mud and the other in mid-air before she flails into the dark chasm with a dirty splash. Much shouting ensues and Gavin, mortified, lurches forward to try and catch hold of the woman's hand. Cat laughs involuntarily and Gavin, furious, turns to give her a proper disapproving stare at which point Bethany grabs Gavin's trouser leg and in he goes. Cat is instantly helpless with laughter, doubling over at the sight of the two of them, heads only just visible as they each scrabble at the sides of the muddy shaft in vain. Cat, what are you doing? comes Shirley's voice from her upstairs window. Lance's front hedge obscures the mudfest from her view. Cat tries to speak, but she is incapable. She points with one hand and grips her belly with the other. She mouths, Gavin, and Shirley understands, nodding in resignation. All right, I'm coming, she calls. The commotion brings all the residents of Rowan Drive into the cul-de-sac. Violet sets up a rapid yapping from Mick's front room window, bringing him out with his ladders, and soon enough, with Cat still trying to calm her hysterics, Bethany is out, water streaming from her, shaking with cold. Gavin blunders out behind her and glares at Cat. Shirley waits with a towel, and he feels a thickness in his throat. Then he feels something else, a tug at his foot. He looks down and sees a cord of some kind caught in his shoelaces, leading off back down the well, as he thinks of it. Him and Mick pull out what looks like a large parcel of mud. As the mud slides off the object, 
bright colours peep through the sludge, and Cat, still a little breathless, is captivated by the sight of the thing. That's Charity's. I remember her playing with it when she was really small. It was bigger than her. Jemima. Mick holds the doll by her woollen hair in mid-air between the little group. It drips. It begins to look familiar to those who were in Eric's lantern room last night. Cat whips out her phone and photographs it, making sure she gets the muddied Gavin in the shot. Gavin sees her and puts out a hand. No, don't! But it's too late. Cat has posted it to the chat group and tagged in charity. I think of the people in the neighbourhood waking up or drinking their morning beverage of choice, out with arms wrapped about themselves, assessing their mangled property, or on their way to work, navigating the disfigured streets, when they will receive these digital notifications. Looking into the relentlessly bland sky, one can imagine the words and pictures flying about from one place to another, unimpeded, from within the borough to without. There's a ping on Tanya's phone as she settles into her own red plastic chair at the hospital. Ruby helps her down into it and gives a reassuring smile as she sees the pain visible on Tanya's face. Tanya looks away, unused to being in need of help for anything. She diverts attention to the chat, showing Ruby the image Kat has just sent. Ruby stares and Tanya sees the recognition on her face. Friend of yours? Yeah, mate from school. Ruby counters the sarcasm. Tanya smiles tightly and looks again at the image. How are you feeling? For the fiftieth time, I'm fine. I just have a very painful headache, which, as you so rightly point out, could be life-threatening, or could be absolutely nothing to worry about. Nothing has changed since our conversation at the crack of dawn. You asked me to call early. 7am is early. 6am is not. It is in my life. Then you have an awful life. I like the morning. Yes, all right, perky pants. I can just leave you here if you like. Tanya looks at her. Would you prefer that? Tanya has a look on her face that says quite clearly that she would, but as the bulk of foul-smelling human occupying the next chair along shifts and randomly kicks out its left foot, connecting painfully with Tanya's twisted ankle, the effect is lost and Ruby cocks her head to one side, one to her. Tanya swallows the expletive lurking in her mouth and settles for a sharp poke in the person's ribs. Don't do that! Give me one good reason why not. Ruby nods to the pokey, who has gained consciousness and clearly felt the jab. She heaves herself over and scowls at Tanya. Tanya turns her head to find the woman's face closer to hers than she was expecting. She covers her nose. Her eyes widen. Jesus! Penny! 
Penny tries to focus, pulling herself away and scowling harder at Tanya. She wrinkles her own nose and pulls the ends of her lips down, raises her eyebrows and sniffs, turning away. Tanya is amazed and looks at Ruby as if she should know what's going on. Then the woman turns back and shoves Tanya hard. Ha 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 ha! Course it's me, Tanya, you old trout! Ow! Sorry, lass. <laughs> Only fair enough giving you a poke just now. What was that for? You kicked me. Did I? Oh, sorry. Well, I wasn't fully conscious, was I? So that don't count, does it, eh? Doesn't it? Course not. Right. The women regard each other, one looking sleek, expensive and slightly perturbed, the other clearly half-cut, with greasy hair, rough skin and at least three teeth missing from her very genuine smile. Ruby waits to be further entertained. Oh, she? Oh, just the help. <laughs> Penny almost unseats herself, rolling half onto her other neighbour, an extremely small, very old man with an enormous face mask on him. His eyes open wide in shock. Careful, says Ruby. Oh, sorry, me fella. <laughs> me coordination isn't the best. <laughs> Had a night of it, you know. Had a good old night of it. <laughs> Must still be a bit pissed. <sighs> How's your fella? Penny leans in to Tanya again. Do you know her fella? He's a right one. How is he, Tan? Could you lean back? Penny, you stink to high heaven and I have a headache. Oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Well? He's dead. Dead? The assembled company prick their ears. Is he? Oh, you finally did it then, did you? Couldn't stand it no more. Shh! <laughs> the old git. He deserved it. I hope it was painful. The entire waiting room is listening for the juicy details. Tanya looks around meaningfully, and seeing this, Penny looks about herself too and pats Tanya comfortingly on the knee. This is a private conversation, she announces to the room. You want to take yourself off speakerphone then, love? comes a response from the back of the room, and there are a few chuckles and shoulder shudders among the audience. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> what happened? Heart attack. Oh, really? That's a shame. It did take a while to finish him off. Ruby is appalled, and Tanya gives her a look to say, I'm just humouring her. Don't worry, Ruby, I'm not a murderess. Anyway, it was more than three months ago, so, you know, life goes on. Penny nods sympathetically. And how are you? Penny smiles. You got the house, did you? And his business. Still just as nosy as ever, I see. I suppose he owed you really, didn't he? Shame about the rest of us, though, eh, Tan? 
ticket number 22. Please proceed to cubicle 7. The automatic voice drifts over the waiting people. Oh, that's me. Do stop shouting. The old man squeaks. Sorry. I'm pleased, aren't I? It's my turn. I've been waiting for 4 hours. Oh god. Ruby droops. Tanya, however, looks like she's just got away with something. Penny shoves her again. Good to see you, gal. I'll let the others know you're running things now, shall I? I'm not running anything, Penny. Tony's business was his. I haven't taken over it really, just Oh yeah. <laughs> oh right. Well, nice to see you, Tan. You get that headache sorted out. Could be a life-threatening tumor that. You could be cold meat and it day if you don't get it seen to. Tara love. She squeezes Tanya's shoulder, heaves herself up onto her trunk-like legs and looks down at Ruby. Bye, officer. Here. I saw you on Teledinar. You and that angry pig. <laughs> Back at work down Nick now is he? Ruby's face is like set plaster. Ignore her, Ruby. She's rude to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Just my way of being friendly, isn't it? Ruby leans away and looks in the other direction. See you, ducks. Tanya watches her go, looking serious now. And Ruby sees an opportunity to do a bit of poking of her own. How do you know, Penelope? Then it's Penfold. Actually, it's a nickname. Her real name is Jane. You grew up with her. Yes, says Tanya, regretting her engagement with the question. In Lowellie, or Tanya looks at her as if disappointed. as if she expected better of clever ruby ruby narrows her eyes seeing the challenge oh the st nick's estate tanya smiles can you tell no i can't i was born there yes but actually i spent part of my childhood in lower lee penny and i stayed together at a children's home opposite Gav, Mr. Barron's house. Now the beach's care home. Hmm. Ruby waits expectantly for details. I won't talk about the home or my childhood. Okay. Just Gavin said Eric and Padma used to tell stories for the kids from there at the little theatre down the road. I'm just interested in Padma. She seems like a singular character. Tanya stares at Ruby. They sit in the noise of the room, coughs punctuating the murmurs, doors swishing open, the intercom bleating out its next instruction. She was, and yes, we did. Okay? Okay. Sorry, I don't want to distress you. You should try and keep calm in case you've got a voracious brain tumor like Penny said. Tanya lets her gaze drift off to the reception desk. Where a woman is being manhandled away by security. I didn't know either of them while I lived there, but we went along to these charitable events where they did at least try to make us feel like children rather than human rubbish. 
I sound bitter. Actually, those outings were lovely. Magical, almost. They were the one thing that was reliably comforting. So, you were just one of the group, then? You didn't ever listen to stories that were told just for you? No, I don't think so. Sometimes we were only a small group, maybe three or four, which would have been me, Penny, and Gonk, or Trisha, as she was actually called. Horrible girl, but not surprising given her start in life. And maybe Lance. An image of an old tea bag pulses in Ruby's mind. Ruby nods encouragingly, wanting to ask more questions, but Tanya looks down at her phone as it lights up with a message. She sighs and looks pensively at the screen. How long do you think we'll be? No idea. And it depends on what's wrong. They could keep you in. I can't stay. In fact, I think I feel a bit better. Can we go? No. No, we can't go. Seriously, you've got a head injury. We should have come last night. Tanya sighs, nods, taps a message into her phone and puts it away. Tony knew Eric quite well. I used to see him quite often when we were... She gathers her features as if thinking of the right word. Dating. Really? I suppose they were a similar age, were they? Well, Tony was a bit younger, but yes, not far off. Right. They were friends then? I suppose so, yes. And... Was Padma friends with Tony too? God, no. Oh, right. No, Tony was racist, Ruby. He would never have spent time socially with Padma, except at some do where he had to appear to be more human. Tanya, did you not like your husband very much? You can tell, can you? You didn't kill him, did you? No, officer, I didn't kill him. Do you wish you had? Tanya laughs. She laughs until she is overtaken by sadness. She looks at Ruby. Then she shakes her head. Ruby is kicking herself for asking the wrong question. Was he abusive? To me? Yes, or of course he was. I'm sorry. That's shit. It's usual. It's not unusual. They look at each other and suddenly burst out laughing together. Tanya has tears in her eyes. What on earth are you doing with Gavin Barron? Ruby quietens. I'm not sure, she says. Why? Don't you like him? I don't know that I don't like him. I find him irritating. He always seems to be a few seconds away from a catastrophe. Socially, he's a complete disaster. And he's too nice. Right. Well, I like all of those things about him. He's very entertaining. Tanya smiles, and Ruby feels like she's betrayed Gavin. I don't mean... And there, little messages are pinging into Ruby's phone. They're still flying about. The hospital is on a hill higher than the police station. It perches as if it's on a windy sea cliff. 
Its walls seem always to have to brace against the prevailing breeze, its windows squinting against the pale glare of sky. You can join the dots between these significant edifices. It's the same in any town, isn't it? Public buildings and those with some importance to the community or its history. To the identity of a place. The hospital teeters. The police station glowers further down the hill. Lightwood House skulks in its green hollow. The church stands naked atop its tarmac, stripped of its reason for being. The theatre sits satisfied with itself and in turn is bathed in the glow of communal approval and even love. There's an echo bouncing between the theatre and Eric's house. It reminds me of earlier this morning, just before dawn. Elle is still inside the big house, washing up, tidying a little, feeding the cat, that sort of thing. Charity has gone for some air after their night of instruction in the storytelling arts, and she is stood, shell-like, as if she has been divested of her stuffing, where Gavin was that day when him and Ruby had their over-the-wall conversation and Ruby cut her head. Remember, they walked along the track to find Charity and found the children's hospital ID bracelet nestled in the long, unkempt grasses of the common land. She gazes to the right, where the track takes a hold in the soft, muddy grass, leading towards the back gate. She watches the garden scans for movement before moving onto the track and padding softly along it until she feels the change between mud, solid earth beneath her, and something else. Wood? Rotten planks of wood, is it? Must be there to cover a sodden patch where the rain gathers. There's the remnant on her left of fence posts and part of a handrail. She touches her fingers to it lightly, starts to reach her leg to the left, past the rail, and tentatively pushes on the ground there. It's spongy. She starts to lean her weight onto it. The phone goes, and she draws her foot back. Her gaze lingers, though, and she hears the chiming. She sets up her breathing like she's been taught. In for six... Hold for six, out for six, and the sound suffuses into her mind. She seems to inflate a little. Elle calls to her, and the phone stops ringing. The pair rejoin, ready, finally, to go and rest. Now, though, there are no more echoes. As the daylight reaches its brightest point... The air above the streets and gardens of Lower Lee seems to thicken a little, and sound is dampened, along with memories. The church looks jaundiced. It seems to draw itself up and away from the dark crack that snakes out from its buttress across the smooth asphalt to the brick wall at the edge of the car park. The wall has subsided slightly, where it is undermined, like someone has pushed their thumb into its coping stones. The fissure has been reported to the diocese by Sally. Ruby saw it when she went to collect her car at first light. 
Tanya was made aware of it by Lance, who stopped by on his return from medical attention. Gavin has recorded and filed the phenomenon as part of his evidence gathering. The light lowers. It yellows, souring and congealing, reflecting off the windows of the block of flats, turning them the colour of rancid butter, a devious colour. Charity's sleeping face looks sickly in the acidic low light. There's a sheen on her skin and her breath hitches as she runs among the images of her dreams, patched together as they are from the blood and shock of Padma's death, the stories and lessons and heartbreak of the night before, and the earth-caked image of her childhood doll. Elle watches her. She's in Charity's big armchair, vaping. Her smiles are all gone. She glances to the window and recognises the change in the air. She pulls her hood up and shuffles her shoulders down, re-inhabiting the person she was three days ago, raising her defences, her eyes half-closed, as low as they ever go. Time ticks. Elle raises her chin, as if using it to feel the temperature of the room or the direction of the wind. Thinks. Perhaps she's still here then. She places the vape pen on the table and rummages in her pockets. She finds scraps of paper and a pen. Looks again at Charity. Writes something. Leans forward and tucks the paper into Charity's open palm smiles very slightly as Charity shifts and then begins to breathe more easily, more regularly, until she seems so peaceful an angel might be stroking her auburn hair. Sitting forward with her elbows on her knees, watching her magic at work, she comes to a decision. Chimes sound. If we were to glance down Rowan Drive again, we'd chance upon a tableau resembling a corner of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. At least four people are now covered in mud. Reg has got a hold of the rag doll and is pulling it relentlessly. Lance is on the other end of the doll, head end to be exact, and is ignoring Shirley, trying to reason with him. The more you pull it, the more he'll pull it, Lance. He thinks it's a game. Get him to stop it, then. It's your dog. He. He's a he. Let go. You don't do yourself any favours, Lance, says Cat, wiping the brown gunge from her face. Yes, Gavin got his revenge. It was neatly done, if a little devious. Shirley turns back to Gavin who is trying to extricate himself from the scene. I'm happy to lend my bathroom if anybody wants a shower, it's no problem. Bethany looks offended that no one has yet taken her up on the offer. I have fluffy towels, she tries. Beth, we all live within a few feet of this spot. Why would we come and use your bathroom when we can use our own? She sees Shirley's look. Or our sister's. Or... You just want a bit of company? She winks. Bethan's face drops. No! No! I just... Gavin, where are you going? 
Where do you think? I need a bath. You can use my bathroom. Honestly, I don't mind. Cat strides past Shirley to lay claim to the washing facilities. Sounding a bit desperate now, Beth. Thanks, but I just need to sort my camera out so it doesn't die. He turns to Shirley reluctantly. Uh, do we, uh need to have a chat. Gavin's eyelashes are quivering, clumped in what looks increasingly like concrete. Well, yes. Tomorrow? Shirley sighs. Sorry, I just... He gestures to his muddy self. All right, I'll call round first thing. Gavin nods and retreats back up to Hawthorne. Shirley turns towards number 11 throws over her shoulder. Reg, leave it! Reg lets go at once, racing to get inside Shirley's house before she shuts the door. And Lance, suddenly unmoored, is flung backwards and into the crater, arse first. Mick, just emerging again from his front door, stops and steps quietly back inside his front door and clicks it shut. Don't worry, Lance, I'm still here. You're not alone, calls Bethany. The air thickens. The sound of Gavin's footsteps seems to diminish as he makes his way home, and he finds the going harder as he walks up the hill. By the time he rounds the bend towards his driveway, he's almost out of breath, and as he approaches his front door he realises there is a hooded figure lurking in his garden. He's opened his mouth to inquire when, Can I use your computer? L, what are you... My computer? Er, why? To write something, that's all. Nothing online or anything. Just write some stuff and maybe print it out, if you've got a printer. Right, I suppose so, yes. If it's urgent. It's important and, yeah, a bit urgent. Mim defence. Right. Okay, well, in that case. Thanks. How did it go last night? Yeah, you know. No, I don't know. Why are you covered in mud? Well, you know. Funny. I'll tell you about it when I'm no longer covered in mud. Come on. He lets them in and points to the kitchen. Get the kettle on and I'll set up the laptop, it's in here. Then I'm off for a shower. Gavin inspects his camera while the laptop powers on. He decides to let the mud dry on it and then brush it off. So it sits, bulky and dirty, next to the box of floppy disks. Gavin notices the juxtaposition and reminds himself to ask Brandon for the use of that old PC from the theatre later on. Elle mooches into the room and she smiles slightly, letting him past, glancing at the camera and the plastic box of discs before sliding into the desk chair and beginning to type. As Elle bashes away, writing a stream of words, the bathrooms of Lower Lee are kept busy in the hours before the community meeting is due to start. People creating a finished version of themselves putting their faces on. Sally, ever mindful of Kat's remark, restrains her use of backcombing and hairspray. She curls her lip at herself in the mirror. Lily, love, 
don't you mind what that kitty cat says? She never did know when to sheath her claws, that one. You be yourself, my darling, and walk tall. Come on, get your boof on boofed. That's it. Sally smiles sadly at her Lily Savage impression and wishes, not for the first time, she had the quick-wittedness to fire a comeback at people like Cat at the time. She draws in her breath, closes her eyes, and breathes out. And then she's off downstairs, first neighbour out of the door to the theatre, keys jangling as she goes to open up the venue. Outside on Hawthorne Road, the air is almost sticky. It swells like homogenised milk being brought slowly to the boil. Sally recoils as she opens her door, wonders if she needs an umbrella, but there is no spot of rain. She takes one anyway, wary of what might press down on her from above. Lewis passes Sally as he returns with the puppy from their walk. He nods at her not wanting to waste breath on speaking, the air so thick it seems to take an effort to get it into his lungs. The dog refuses to walk up the path, putting all her strength into her front paws and bracing. Lewis smiles. She's so small and light, he could easily just lift the lead and she'll come with it, dangling in mid-air. He isn't so cruel, though, and picks her up, letting her nuzzle into his neck. Shutting his front door, he looks back through the glass panel to Padma's house. He feels his heart sink as he thinks of her, and remembers that he'll never see her again. Never be in the same room as her. The same bed. The scent of her. That spice that he would know was her if he smelt it halfway around the world. He thinks about her in the morgue. The scent would have gone, wouldn't it? It wouldn't linger. She'll be cold. She was never cold in life. Her warmth radiated towards everyone he ever saw her come into contact with. Watching as Sally re-emerges from her front door, wrapping a scarf around her neck, he thinks of Tony. No. Padma had time for everyone. Except Tony. Lewis snaps out of his thoughts as Sarah arrives home. Another lonely meal, each of them in their own world and only partially inhabiting the one they share together. All across the neighbourhood, each house, each flat, each room with its inhabitants, individual in their anxieties and worries. Nervous of the social event to come, but looking forward to seeing their friends and neighbours all the same hoping that some company and their shared experience can help them find some answers, or at least some comfort, in the wake of the fall of their neighbourhood. You have been listening to Low Light, written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley for Crawley Voice Studio. Find out more at crawleyvoicestudio.com Thank you for listening.